This series contains frank discussions of sexual abuse, addiction, mental illness, and suicidality. It includes unfiltered and, at times, profane language regarding these topics. Episodes may also contain sarcastic remarks and laughter. Some may deem inappropriate, given the seriousness of the issues covered. Many survivors, myself included, employ humor as a means of self-protection from the feelings brought on by recounting the past. Our goal is not to shock or offend, but rather to provide open, honest, and raw conversation to demonstrate you're not alone and there is a way out. This is Silenced by Stigma. Our guest today is Jay Sefton, therapist, writer, and recovering alcoholic. Jay was subjected to abuse by a Catholic priest at a time when parishioners viewed them as beyond reproach. We discuss how that distorted view perpetuated the abuse by creating a safe haven for Jay's abuser. Jay, what's going on, buddy? How's it going, Mike? That's eh, all right. We're here to pick apart your life and make you feel miserable reliving childhood trauma. What do you say? I can't think of a better way to spend a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you're an educated person, and you're now a therapist, right? I am a therapist. You grew up in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, yeah. So, your abuse happened when you were 13. Yes. Before we get into it, I'm curious, did your parents know at the time? No. So it was a priest at uh, Annunciation BBM Parish just outside of Philadelphia, you know, mid-80s Philadelphia. It was a good time to be a Catholic. There was not much to question in those days. Yeah, They were thrilled that a priest was hanging around. It's, at this point, it's become cliche of, you know, Father Smith came to dinner. What, a, what an honor to bestow upon our household to have a priest over, and he would come to dinner. My mom would prepare my dad, and he would be chasing me around the living room, living room, wrestling and grabbing, and you know. And um, the biggest part of the uh, abuse happened around a passion play that he wrote and directed, and the passion play was called "A Journey of Love," which is kind of interesting. And I played Jesus in the passion play. You know that was put on for the entire parish, and looking back feels like one of those optical illusions where you look one way and it's two ladies looking at each other. You look another way and it's the candlesticks. You look back knowing what we know now post-2002 and think, what is going on? These kids were, you know, we were 13 dressed up in robes, ripping the, you know, I, I had the robes ripped off of me, thrown down and whipped and hung on a cross with a diaper on, essentially, a diaper that Father Smith had to put on, you know, himself. Nobody else was allowed to do Wait, it. Wait, well, he put on your, I don't know, underwear or whatever, your diaper? One of those loincloths, you know, when you see Christ hanging on a, on a cross with the, uh, the loincloth on. So I'm curious, before we get into how absolutely disgusting that is, what was his justification for explaining, oh, Jay, this is why I'm doing this. So my year was the uh, third year at Annunciation that the Passion Play had gone on. And it had gathered a bit of a reputation. And as professional as professional can be for 13-year-olds, that some of them don't want to be doing it. And his whole justification was, we're going for authenticity here. So 
one of the things that he would do is he would teach the guards how to whip me. So everything happens sort of out in the open, and it's all become normalized. Nobody's questioning it. And at rehearsals, he would throw me onto the, the steps of the altar with all my clothes off and just this loincloth. And he had made um, whips out of, remember, boat shoes, dock siders? Yeah, yeah. So he would that. take those leather strips off and make a whip out of like four or five of them and just haul off. And then turn the whips over to 13-year-old boys. You know, you get a 13-year-old and you're like, whip Jesus the way it really happened, the way I just showed you. And right. they didn't care. You know, it would come around my neck and I would have welts on my back and my neck. And it's weird, right? Like, that's weird. So it didn't traumatize these kids or make them feel uncomfortable that they were watching a grown man whip the living shit out of you? Well, they were watching a servant of God mm. portray the story of Jesus, the, the stations of the cross. And it is hard for people to move against the group. I don't know what they felt inside, to be honest. Like, and I haven't talked to any of them in years, but it's going to take superhuman strength, particularly when you've been conditioned in a childhood in the Catholic Church to say, oh, you know what, Father? This isn't right. Our parents' generation treated the Catholic Church and priests like they were flawless. They could do no wrong, and they were given carte blanche. Can you imagine now, present day, a priest coming over for dinner, which I guess is, you know, maybe still happens and is a nice thing for Catholic moms and dads, then wrestling a 13 year old in the living room? That wouldn't fly, but back then, yeah. They walked on water, right? That's what our parents thought. It is interesting, you know, that you bring that up to think about. Sometimes we think change doesn't happen or it doesn't happen fast enough. I, it makes me think of uh, smoking in bars. When they said, we're not going <laughs> to smoke in bars anymore, it, I thought, that impossible. Now you can't really even imagine going into a bar and smoking. I think about what goes on for me when I see a priest now versus when I saw a priest in the 80s. It would be like, oh, there's a man of God now. And I feel bad for some of the priests that are trying to do God's work that are out there, like trying to, because when they walk into a room, it's a, it's a completely different thought. I, if that goes on for me, and I'm assuming goes on for a lot of people when a priest walks into a bar. <laughs> with with a rabbi uh when i see a priest i don't think you know these godly vessels but i still show the old school respect that kind of thing yeah. you know it's just because i have no reason to doubt that this one individual man has done anything and i guess i still do that that's how i was taught you know but i didn't have to my god what you went through. Of course you think that. Of course. How could you not? Yeah. I don't, I can't do the father thing anymore. When I pull back and I look and I'm like, are you kidding me? This is just a person mm -hmm. and we're supposed to call them father. I have a hard time giving it right. to the Catholic church anymore. <laughs> I'm the same way with police. Yeah. And I am in no way their biggest fan. But when I meet a police officer, for whatever reason, 
I'm always, you know, high officer. Nice to see you, detective. Yeah. All, all those things. It's, it's just in my DNA, but I've never had a bad run-in with the police. Right. I've been in cuffs, but I deserved that. Right. You know, and honestly, it's white privilege. I used to feel weird about saying that, but it definitely is yeah. white privilege. Clearly, I'm making this all about me. <laughs> Aren't you happy you signed up for this interview? And so I had a friend, a um, couple brothers that I met in like 2000. They grew up Catholic, and they told a story about their father, uh, their actual father, and a priest in their, so this is also the 80s, we were the same age, and a priest was exhibiting some shady behavior toward the kids. And they told the story about how their father went over to the priest and said, if you ever fucking come around my family again, I'll kill you. And I think about people who have their voice fully intact and can see through the conditioning of authority enough to locate it in these moments when it gets really tested. You know, a, a priest was, particularly in the 80s, was a voice of authority, like you said. And it's the ability to stand up and say, this may not be the popular thing, but I don't give a shit. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what needs to be said. And I have a lot of respect and I've always found myself sort of drawn to the people that can go against the, the group think and move in and do what's necessary without thinking about it. Yeah, instinctive protection. Yes. So where were your parents through all this? Like what was going on at home? It was such an honor to be chosen to play Jesus in this passion play. I don't think I ever came home and said, this guy's doing this, and they didn't pay attention to me. It was so normalized that I didn't really start to come to grips with what it was that happened. I mean, I can look back and check all the boxes of alcoholic, destroying relationships, unable to really give and receive love. You can look back and say, oh, okay. And quite frankly, I was in therapy for a while before this had come out. And um, most of my therapy was around how much I drank. I couldn't control it and my guilt and my shame and all this stuff. And Father Smith gets defrocked in 2007. And my dad sends me an email that's got the subject, the bastard. So it was in the newspapers. He read it sent me the uh, article. At the bottom, it said, for, you know, call the victim's assistance coordinator of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. So I picked up the phone and called. And now that therapy that I had been doing, um, I would do it when I could afford it. And so I was working at a restaurant in Los Angeles, and I would go, uh, go see Alex when I could afford it. And, and so I'd be, you know, a couple months on, a couple months off. I called the victim's assistance coordinator the only thing I needed to say was, I played Jesus in the Passion Play at Annunciation in 1985. And I remember thinking, like, what am I doing? That was the voice inside my head. It, it was actually probably way more um, harsh than that. It's probably like, you're a fucking asshole. You fucking pussy. What are you doing? Call it. But I, I call and they said, we're so sorry. Can we pay for your therapy? And I was stunned. It was the first realization of like, oh, something really might have happened here. Now, as kids growing up, of course, there were all the jokes. 
people would make fun of me for being Jesus in it. They'd make fun. Everyone knew that Father Smith would pull me into a closet to put the diaper on, and I would get made fun of for it. There was all sorts of. But this was the first time that I thought something may have happened here. And of course, I always enjoyed talking with Alex. So uh, I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Here's my therapist. And I went in and said to Alex, I was like, uh, hey, the Catholic Church is going to be picking up uh, the therapy tab. And he, I remember him just looking at me like, um, and why is that? And I told him and he said, well, you know, this might make some sense if we, you know, so I mean, I wasn't purposely holding back that information. Uh, so it's been a, you know, it's been a, a bit of its own thing going from there to sitting here and talking with you. I did the same in therapy. I never mentioned the stuff that happened because I didn't think it was a problem. I didn't think it, it impacted me. And like you, that's when things started making sense. I'm not trying to be gory or explicit, and you can answer this mm -hmm. or not answer this. Was there anything that happened with that priest that went beyond him placing the diaper on your body? This is the insidious nature of some of it. You pull back and you look and you say, okay, here's a 45-year-old guy chasing a kid around grabbing thighs, squeezing as hard as he can, poking into your ribs, pushing his full body weight onto you, wrestling, you know, and it, much stronger than, than I am. Right? Then you take it into the passion play, stripping a 13-year-old kid, pull him in, into a closet, and it was about 20 minutes to place this thing on. That's what it would take. So he'd be pulling it real tight. He'd be on his knees. I'd be there naked. He's wrapping it around me and pulling it in and you have a uh, safety pins that it would these huge safety pins is what it would get so he's pulling them and he's poking you i'm bleeding from the safety pin um and it would take about 20 minutes of being alone with him in this room while this was happening now i can remember knowing that this was coming and dreading the day that it, we'd have to do it for the first time I remember the feeling of exiting my body to just wait for, you know, it would get very steamy in there because I'd be pulling back, he'd be pulling me forward, he'd be sweating, I'd be turning red and embarrassed and just praying for it to be over. I went on a 10-day camping trip with this guy. It was camping in whitewater rafting down the New River in West Virginia and through the uh, Mammoth Caves of Kentucky. And it was me, three other kids and him in a van for 10 days. I know that one of the other kids had testified in the 2005 grand jury report that he was molested on that trip. I don't have memories of, of me. I've got strange memories of drinking on that trip and finding beers and drinking. I've got memories of things in the tent where kids were stripping and stuff, but it's like flashes the way um, you know, a movie flashes. I remember uh, spending a lot of time alone on that trip, wanting to shower differently. I have memories of pleading with him to let me put the, the diaper on myself. My mom tells me that um, after the camping trip, I came home and said, 
I don't ever want him down here again. I don't ever want him over for dinner. And they never did have him over for dinner again. I don't remember saying that to my mom. That's information that was given to me by her. You know, you look at the grand jury report from 2005, and I didn't testify in that. So it was 2007 that he was defrocked based on the kids that did, the adults at that point that did testify. But all of it is my experience. He would take us to racquetball and force us to get naked before get, he said it was a club rule that you had to be naked to get in the jacuzzi. Yeah, so to, uh, that's a long way of answering your question that if you're talking about penetration, I don't have memories of that. Um, and I, I struggle with what are the effects of a developing mind when, when somebody's grooming you, when somebody's not trustful and they're supposed to be trustful? Like, what does this do? I mean, he was constantly, there was always alcohol around him. There were trips to the Jersey Shore. There were trips to the Poconos. There were, and we were always getting drunk. You know, we're 13, 14. If I'm supervising 14-year-olds, 13-year-olds, I would well know where the alcohol was. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it wouldn't be happening. So there's some part that wanted it to happen, knew that we wanted to drink, yeah. and was letting it and looking for openings. and. What are the effects of the threat of abuse, the, the grooming, the predatory actions? And there are also things in the grand jury report that of him being accused of penetration, of other things. So, yeah. I read an Australian study. They talk about exactly that. Cortisol floods your system. Mm. It stays in your system. You're in a constant state of arousal hyperarousal, right? I don't mean sexual. I mean, you're antsy, you're on your feet, you're looking at what warnings are around you. And there's a couple of things that happen with that. You're not able to distinguish an innocuous event from a dangerous situation. And it does damage inside uh, endocrine system. It can create heart problems. They also said which I found pretty interesting, was spinal problems. It just causes a child to decay. Hmm. I have to ask, do you think it's possible that something went beyond what you remember? Which I know is a weird question, but do you suspect that, that it's being pushed away? I don't know. As a therapist, I've come around to what's important here. and. I have no doubt what this guy's intentions were, and they weren't good, right? But it's healing for me to look at the grand jury report, read that story, and read that a, an independent investigation came to. He directed the Passion Place to um, satisfy his, what was it, depraved and sadistic sexual desires. I was just going to say that. He's a sadist. I mean, it's so apparent in the yeah. violence that he's mixing with this bizarre sexual sort of boundary crossing. It's horrifying. Yeah. The camping trip is probably the thing that haunts me a little more than, than most. I've got lots of flashes of things. But I can't say that those memories have surfaced if they're there. Maybe they're not there. Maybe they never happened. Um, and I'm not trying to push you. I, yeah. It may have come across that no, way, no. and I apologize. No, I mean, it, it, it's there. It begs the question, you know? And my dad got very upset about all this. Like, I don't think he ever 
saw it that way. And when this all started coming out in 2007, and he asked me the same question, and he was so upset that I remember thinking, I remember going into sort of taking care of him mode, although I did appreciate his level of outrage. Um, and I remember saying to him, well, look, Dad, it's not like he blew me or anything, okay? And I remember him being like, oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, please, just this isn't funny. And um, I appreciated all that, but I wanted to try and set his mind a little bit yeah. at ease. Uh, that is interesting. When you tell someone who loves you what happened to you, you do end up comforting them. Yeah. It really is kind of wild, right? Like you're saying, it's okay. I'm okay now. Of course, you didn't, you couldn't see what was happening. Right. Well, I think what it brings up too is the ripple out effect. It is so uh, destructive. Mm -hmm. Yet, because it's, yes, it's the, the person. And then it ripples out in the family. Some families don't want to ever look at this stuff. They don't want to think that it can happen to them. So they decide that it didn't happen to them. And that is damaging to the, the victim, the survivor. And then you've got this other piece where, you know, my dad was like telling me that he was sorry. And I, I, I didn't know what to do with that. I mean, he was so distraught. That all, all I could say was, how could you know? We were all, we were all fooled by this. Nobody, nobody was doing anything. There was mothers of other, you know, volunteer mothers that would do the costumes and stuff. Nobody was looking at it like, um, why are they taking that kid into a closet and asking him to get naked? They all knew, but it was so under this thing of like, what an event we've produced here. Mm -hmm. And you know, you go back. I have it on videotape still. It's a shitty play. I mean, it's a it's an but awful everybody play. Everybody was thirteen. <laughs> hey, I had some acting chops. Oh, and, uh, Lord. <laughs> but yeah, you go back and you're like, this isn't even worth staying quiet over. Somebody <laughs> should have just said, let's <laughs> shut this down. Oh my god! Yeah, they were under the spell, uh, yeah. and the priests were under the protection that everyone thought they were pures. And white as snow. Yeah. When you told your parents that you didn't want Father Smith coming over anymore to the house, were there follow-up questions? Did it cause immediate concern? Like I don't know. I don't have the memory of telling them. I just, I cannot believe your parents wouldn't have any kind of reaction yeah. to your abrupt statement. How were things at home? My parents had a really good relationship basically nine months out of the year. And when they would get into an argument, they would end up not talking to one another for about three months at a time. You know, that was the, there wasn't much communication. And this probably shed some light on the, your question of part of what, what I love about therapy is we decide to sit down and talk with one another. And with my wife now, we, we'll, we'll talk through things. Right, so your family stability was threatened during those periods. And when you're young, we're talking, you know, pre-abuse when you're six, ten years old, that's got to rattle you. Well, and it's more of the, the fish trying to describe water to the fish. It's just what you grow up in. 
So it's not until you have, for me, it wasn't until there was something to compare it to. Right. I remember as a, as a young kid, this is as far back as I can remember, I used to bang my head to go to sleep on the pillow, right? I would bang my head on a pillow to go to sleep. I don't know what it, I don't know why. I don't know what it means. I mean, I know some people talk about trauma and banging your head and soothing. It may have been a soothing thing. But I never knew it was weird until I went to sleep over a friend's house and they were like, what the fuck is going on in there? It was like, <laughs> what's the, the movie? Um, the spinning head and the, and the split pea? Exorcist. Exorcist. This is roughly around the Exorcist era where I have an aunt that tells the story. She was watching my brother and I, and she was watching the Exorcist and I was upstairs trying to get to sleep and she just hears poof, 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 and was <laughs> terrified. So I have no idea that this is weird until I get outside of it. I have no idea that getting into an argument and deciding not to speak to one another for three months is strange until I'm in a relationship where we talk through something. Now, that's been my work of not withdrawing. That has been the conditioning that I've had to struggle against is when things get hard, I want to pull the world down over top of me. Drinking was awesome for this. Right. And, and withdraw all of my love and go live on an island by myself and cut up my identification. That was part of the template in your house. Yeah. There was withdrawing. Okay, so let's go back to when you contacted the Catholic Church about the abuse you suffered. They paid for your therapy. What else? I mean, did it end there? No. Um, that's when I start getting interested in. What's happening with all of this, right? Father Smith gets defrocked. Where is he? What is going on with everything? So I start like looking into it, and that's when I found the 2005 grand jury report. It blew my mind reading it and being like, yes, this is my story. And so part of that grand jury report was the recommendation to open a two-year look back window so that victims could bring their perpetrators to court. Now, wait, wait, wait. You called the church. You said this happened to you. Yeah. They said, we'll pay for your therapy, but they didn't make you aware of that two year window. You had to investigate the grand jury report on your own to find this out. Yes. You know, so the victim's assistance coordinator is a, an employee of the church, and this whole story is, it's never surprising. I mean, it was in the beginning, but it's just never surprising. They didn't set up an office of victim's assistance out of the goodness of their heart. Everything is done kicking and screaming. Um, they start lobbying. They start lobbying legislators in uh, Harrisburg to squash the legislation. And what they did was they find their people. They find their people that are either pro-Catholic or aren't opposed to taking some money to defeating a bill. And the, the whole argument has been it's unconstitutional, that there's a remedies clause in the statute of limitations that makes it impossible to pass this legislation. And so the bill would get brought up and it would get to the Judiciary Committee and it would get stalled. And this was happening since 2005. Now we're only talking 2007 when I called 
but my dad is involved at this point and he worked in insurance and knows a bunch of lawyers. And so Delaware had opened up a look back window and he was living in Wilmington at the time and gets my case to a Wilmington attorney. And they're like, well, we'll take it. But until something changes in Pennsylvania, there's nothing we can do. This is when I start paying attention loosely. And as far as the Catholic Church goes, I mean, they're just working with my therapist and, and they, he fills out a, uh, you know, a treatment plan every six months and they re-up it for six months. And that's kind of how that goes. And I'm following it, but it's the same thing every single year. Someone introduces legislation, it makes it to the Judiciary Committee. And if I remember right, there was a guy, uh, Joe Scarnati, that was always torpedoing the bill. And um, this just continues on and on and on. And then 2018 happens in Pennsylvania, where up until that point, they had only done the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. So in, in between, you've got um, Jerry Sandusky happening in Pennsylvania, Penn State. And then you've got this other one that comes out in 2018 that is the rest of the archdiocese in Pennsylvania. And it's horrific. And people think, okay, change is going to come now because you can't deny it. No. The Catholic Church still has its grip on lobbying certain people that make sure that this bill never gets passed. Right now, there's a lot of states that are changing their laws based on this Pennsylvania grand jury report. So the Catholic Church, this is my opinion, sees the writing on the wall and says, this is going to change at some point in Pennsylvania. Let's create the IRRP. Part of the, the IRRP is you sign away your right to ever sue the Catholic Church over anything ever again. So I get a packet in the mail saying, Essentially, look what we've done. We've created an independent reconciliation and reparations program. So I fill out all the paperwork. There's an optional meeting to meet with Ken Feinberg and Camille Biros, and I take them up on it. I have my list of things that I want to talk about, and this is just a talk. And it's very strange. They go on the defensive, they go on the offensive after getting defensive, and I'm a little taken back afterwards. And they're offering pennies on the dollar because it will come fast. Like if you accept your offer within 10 days, it's in your bank account. No questions. No, like they're preying on people being desperate, people that may already be desperate. And I've always said if they had come to me in 2007 and said, hey, how about $10,000 for your signature? I was in such dire straits in 2007 that I would have been like, this is a game changer, where do I sign? But they didn't. Again, they got brought kicking and screaming to doing something. And even then, they're trying to cover their assets. They're trying to minimize costs. And that was what I brought up in the meeting, meeting where Ken Feinberg decided to kind of come on the offensive and go into lawyer mode. So that happens, and I wrote, I reject their offer. They sent a second offer, even though I didn't ask them to. And I wrote an op-ed, and it got published in a Harrisburg newspaper, and I was terrified. I didn't think anything would get published. I just wrote this thing and sent it out, thinking, like, well, nothing will ever happen with this. And they said, hey, we're going to run this tomorrow. And I remember it going up online and just my heart pounding, and I didn't tell anybody. And then it started getting shares on social media. and, I, and 
but it opened up a whole thing that I didn't know was out there, which was a community. People would email me because you can find me online. And all of a sudden I was talking with other survivors and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reach out to Snap and I'm going to say, if you have anybody going through the IRRP and they want to just ask questions, I will be as transparent as possible. I'll tell you what I did because they won't tell you this stuff. They give you a, a form to fill out that is about five lines where, what was the nature of your abuse? I'm going to put that in five lines. Fuck you. It's disappointing and disheartening to have had the thing happen in the first place, have it covered up by bishops and cardinals and popes, hoping that it would never come out, starts to come out with spotlight. The whole world starts to change, and the Catholic Church is still like, nope, not us. It, it just, it is too much of a fight, but it has to keep going on. You got to fight for every inch, you know, yeah. and it feels exhausting, but what other choice is there, right? Yeah. People, if you're listening, hug your children, <laughs> honestly, and just give yourselves a break. If you've been knocked around like Jay and I, maybe give yourself a little compassion because I have that for Jay and he has that for me. Yeah. Anyway, I'm being a little new agey today. I don't know why. Wow. Maybe I have low blood sugar. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I love talking to I you. I do as well. I really do. I feel like we could turn this into a three-hour event, um, which would be unbearable for the listener. <laughs> well, I appreciate you creating this platform and, and having me on, and it's fun talking with you. Yeah, man. All right, pal. You have a good one. All right. Thanks. You too, Mike. Links to our guests' website, email, and social media are in the description. We'll be back in two weeks. But in the meantime, remember, everybody sucks but you.